0: Welcome. Glad that you're here. You might remember Shannon and Tom. They were members of our church family until they moved to North Dakota a few years ago. Uh, before Christmas, they announced that they were going to have triplets. Yeah, triplets. Shannon has taken to writing a blog to describe the journey that they've been on. And last week, they had this big reveal party where they announced that they're going to have uh, two girls and a boy added to their family. I watched online. The good news was revealed in their living room to a private party, but it was streamed on Facebook, and I saw it later few days later, probably, shared by family and then friends. And now I'm sharing it with you. The ripple effect. That's how good news is. It spreads fast. It just spreads. Um, When the Roman generals back in the day won a great victory, they would send a messenger by the fastest horse with the good news back to the city. Yes, we won. We've advanced. We're we're great, and they called this messenger the evangel. They, they, he took the good news back home. And the disciples took this idea, the disciples of Jesus, they said, we've, we've, you know, we've got, we've got news that's, actually we've got news that's better than triplets. We have got news that's better than a military victory. And the word evangel or gospel is used in the New Testament 134 times. And particularly today, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15. and verse 1 there, it says, Now, brothers, I want you to remind you of the gospel, the good news, because by this good news you are saved. Wow. Okay, I need, ding, 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 I need to pay attention. What is it that saves me? What, what is this? I need to zero in on this. So the news of triplets, I mean, I can't even, I mean, can you, it's just gotta be staggering to, oh my goodness, my world is changing forever with this news. And of course, the victory news that comes from the general back to Rome has to just be thrilling. But this news that we, by this gospel, we can be saved, well that's, That is really remarkable. It's indescribable is what it is. What is this thing that can save people like you and me? What is it? How's it work? Do you believe it? Remember this theme that we're kind of working on this month is uh, reasons for your faith. And First Peter chapter 3 says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope you have in Christ. And... Do this with gentleness and respect. And these are the conversations that we should be having with people. Why do you believe? Why is this important to you? Why are you here? Why do you live that way? Well, how do you think that way? This, These are the reasons why right here. So what is the reason for your hope? Why do you believe what you believe? And if you ask the early disciples of Christ... They would point to one fact above all others, and that was the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That was it. It's repeated throughout Scripture, which I will show you in just a second. Let's start with Acts chapter 2, verse 22, where it says, uh, this is the first time it was said publicly. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, who was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death, nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. In these scriptures that I'm going to share, you're going to see some of the biggest buts in the Bible. It's almost every one of these things. He was dead, but God raised him. So rumors had been flying around Jerusalem, For some time now. But this was the first time that someone said it publicly, Peter, here on the day of Pentecost. Some people said that the guards fell asleep at the tomb and the disciples stole the body. That's what they said. Some people said that the women went to the wrong tomb on that early morning and they mistakenly reported the empty tomb. You know, no GPS, foggy morning, you know, how we are with directions, you know. Could happen, huh? Maybe. Um, some people said Jesus never really died. He was in bad shape and he recovered and uh he, he escaped. Well, You've got to have some explanation for why is the tomb empty. What is it? You come up with one. But here in Acts chapter 2, Peter gives his version of the story. It's a different story. Wicked men put Jesus to death, but God raised him from the dead. There, deal with that. What do you think? Is it true? It, Wherever you are in your life today, there's a lot riding on your answer for this. Is it true or not? Um, The early defenders of Jesus would not back off of this one central message. The very next chapter, uh, Peter said in chapter 3, verse 15, You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. The reason for their hope was clear and consistent and loud. And Peter, the fisherman, what a transition in his life, now stood before the supreme court of the land in chapter 4, verse 10, and said, It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you completely healed. Again in chapter 5, The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. It's like, ding, ding, ding. Are you hearing me? This is the one reason for our faith. This was the reason for their hope. So if you're going to defend your faith, if you're wrestling with, is it true or not? This is the thing you need to wrestle with right here. Did he come back from the grave? So we get to 1 Corinthians 15, and it is the foundational teaching of the early church. In the old days, they called it a creed. Maybe you grew up with in a church that had a, a creed. Well, this is a creed from the early church. Uh, some scholars believe that this was kind of like uh, the catechism, if you will. This is what people memorized some think that this is what people had to say before they were baptized into Christ. They had to have this evidence committed to memory so they could say why they are following Christ. I'm not sure about all of that, but here it is for you to read yourself. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, or verse 3, For what for what I received, I passed on to you as a first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared also to James. Then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. So I just want to work our way through this creed quickly this morning with you and just deal with some of the issues. But again, if you are talking with somebody about your faith in Christ and they're questioning it, or if you're questioning your own faith this morning, this is the creed. This is what believers hold to. So let's see if it holds up in your mind. See if it, it holds up. Okay. First question is, did Jesus die? Pretty simple. Did he die? Uh, the Quran, the holy book of uh, Quran, the holy book of Islam says, no, I quote, it says they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, but they thought they did. They did not slay him, but God lifted him up. That's a quote from the Quran. There's a group of Muslims in India that believe that Jesus did not die, but somehow he just uh, disappeared. He took off on a trip to India. And even today, there is a shrine in the land of Kashmir that claims to be the burial place of Jesus. One author wrote a book and suggested that Pontius Pilate was in on this and he he bribed he was bribed by others it doesn't say who who would bribe him Uh, but anyway he allowed jesus to be taken down while he was still alive on the cross and before he died and he was able to recover and move along with life but does that hold up in your mind many people saw jesus nailed to the cross The, the scriptures report that you know, the, the eyewitnesses you can read for yourself. Could he have survived that torture and recovery? Could he do that? Um, once there was a lawyer who was interviewing a coroner in a courtroom. And the attorney was cross-examining this coroner. You know, doctor, before you performed the autopsy, did you check for a pulse? No. Did you check for breathing? The coroner said, uh, No. Did you check for blood pressure? The coroner said, "Uh, no, sir, I did not. Uh, So then, it is possible that the patient was alive when you began the autopsy, correct? coroner said, no. How can you be so sure, doctor? Because his brain was sitting on my desk in a jar. The attorney said, but, but, I see, but, could the patient have still been alive nevertheless? And the witness says, yes, it is possible he could have been alive and practicing law somewhere. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you think, it, think it through here. The description of the crucifixion is for mature audiences. I know that you've seen movies and read about it yourself. You remember that before the cross there was this flogging. It took place, and the back of the victim was shredded by leather straps with pieces of bone, metal balls that were woven into the straps. The cuts would be deep. Uh, they would go from the shoulders to the back of his legs. It, uh, just for a small taste, just think about walking through a briar patch in a pair of shorts and barefoot. Just, you know, would, that alone would be something I would want to avoid. So many victims didn't survive the flogging. They, it, those who did were in serious condition, but then let's move to the cross. Anyone who's seen a movie, the, for instance, The Passion of the Christ, I probably you can probably only watch it one time. That's enough just to it's embedded in your head. These horrible things that Jesus endured, any victim of crucifixion endured. The Roman Romans used these spikes that were five to seven inches long. Just look at your wrists. And think of a nail going through your wrist right now. Just look at your feet and think of a nail going through your feet right now. Just think about you being suspended from a cross. The only thing holding you up were these points of contact with the cross. These nails holding you to the cross. And of course at this point... Uh, Well, I need to back up there. Wordsmiths actually came up with a word to describe terrible pain. And the word they came up with was excruciating, meaning it's out of the cross that this word was developed. And, of course, then the cross was propped up and the body was hung and the shoulders were soon bearing the weight of the body and the feet carried the other part of the weight, excruciating the victims gasping, For air, the heart works overtime to keep blood and oxygen flowing. It can't keep up. The victim dies of cardiac arrest, among other things. For me, another factor to consider in the death of Christ on the cross is the lives of the soldiers who were doing the actual crucifying. What about them? Their life depended on finishing that job. I I say that because when you get to Acts chapter 12, you might remember the story that Peter Peter was put in jail. He escaped jail by this amazing mighty hand of God who helped him get past 16 guards. The next morning, Peter could not be located. And the 16 guards that were responsible for Peter's security in prison were executed. See ya. You can't do your job, you're out of here. So if you ask me, if you give given these factors, it seems reasonable to conclude that those soldiers would carry out their job, right? They would just carry it out. Their life depended on it. So if you add all this together, it seems reasonable to, to conclude that there was a man named Jesus who was put on a cross, and he died like a whole bunch of other people on a cross Died back in those days under Roman rule, the soldiers thought he was dead, and so did the burial party. That leads us to the missing body. Um, did you hear that New York State citizens wagered more than two billion dollars in the first month of online gambling? I heard that number. St- two billion dollars in one month, man. Well, here's a $2 billion question for you. What in the world happened to the body of Jesus Christ? What happened? Where did it go? Was it stolen? Did the girls go to the wrong tomb? Is it in a tomb in Kashmir? What happened? Let's go back to the creed for just a minute. It says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, second line, that he was buried. Seems simple enough. All four biographers mention a man named Joseph of Arimathea. He was a member of the high court, you'll remember. He was very well known in the city, had a reputation. After the story became public, it would be easy to... Locate and interview this man, Joseph of Arimathea. You have his name, you have his city, you know he's part of the high court. Let's just interview him, ask him a couple questions. I bet some people did. Did you, in fact, remove the body of Jesus from the cross? Who gave you the authority and the permission to take that body down? That's unusual. Can you please show us the exact location of the tomb? And how did you leave the body in the tomb? Can you describe how you left it? And of course he would be more than happy to tell you these things. I mean he was right there, he's an eyewitness to the whole thing. He had some help. Boy, he he'd be a key witness in this whole thing. So he was buried. A man of a great reputation oversaw that. Now back to the creed. He was buried and then that he was raised on the third day. So Jerusalem, we have a problem here. We we have a missing body. According to Matthew, the guards went to the chief priest and reported everything that had happened. And uh, you know, you follow the money, right? We've been taught to follow the money. That will lead to the truth of the story. And you know that you know that uh, I'm sorry this is true of us, but we will do just about anything for money. We'll get up early, we'll stay up late, we'll work overtime, we'll take on a second job, we'll stand out in the cold, we'll do whatever it takes to get some money. And um, I read a book a few years ago uh, called Red Market, where I, I read that how drug companies hire people who incredibly take experimental drugs into their body for cash. They have no guarantee they're going to survive this. So the money, if it doesn't go to them, is guaranteed to be sent to their estate, so it can go to their family. It's, it's not all exactly clinical and legal, but it's done in other places. Well, the soldiers were given a large sum of money to say the disciples came during the night and uh, while the while they were sleeping and they stole the body. Okay. So you're going to admit to the public that you were sleeping on duty? Who does that? I don't think you'd want to do that. You've heard some crazy stories, but this this is a whopper here. Look at what they want you to believe. They want you to believe that uh, a young servant girl who caused Peter to cower in fear the night of the betrayal and the arrest... Now 72 hours later, this guy somehow boldly uh, sneaks into a graveyard at night while it's guarded by elite troops and breaks the seal on the tomb and rolls the stone away and has a group that somehow takes the body. This is the question every honest person must answer. How do you explain the missing body? Where is the missing body? If you could just produce that, we would we'd have a different story, but we don't have a different story. So let's move on to the the appearances, after death appearances. <clears throat> Excuse me. The fourth line of the creed says this. He appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, then to the more than 500 other brothers at one time. Okay, I think we can all agree that nobody was inside the tomb to see what happened, how he rose. Nobody saw that. But there are some questions here related to that. He, did he die on the cross? How are you handling that? Did he later appear to people? You got to handle that. There's an expert from Harvard Law School named Simon Greenleaf, who was a claimed legal evidence expert. That was his field in the in the law school. How do you trust the witnesses? He said he studied carefully. <clears throat> The eyewitness accounts of the 17 resurrection appearances <coughs> excuse me of Jesus. He said those witnesses would be admissible in any court of law anywhere. But you need to look, if you have your finger open to the creed in 1 Corinthians 15, there is something missing. Uh, the, the biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, make it clear that Jesus appeared to women first. Luke mentions four girls, and Matthew mentions two girls, yet in the creed of 1 Corinthians 15, it doesn't mention these girls. It looks like a contradiction because it says he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, and others, but he leaves out the girls. So what's going on here with that? Uh, I'm very sorry to report this, ladies. But Jewish culture, first century women were not considered to be competent witnesses in court. Um, there's back up there if I need to give it to you. But it's not unusual because there was a time in our country when uh, the Indian population could not testify regarding their own lands. People stole my land. I don't believe you. You're one of those kind of people. And, of course, black people were not trustworthy witnesses at one time in our country. Of course, the gospel changed all that, but in those days, women, I'm sorry, did not have a voice. They were omitted from the creed, but they get the recognition in Matthew and Luke. So the blunt truth makes this story even more credible because most authors in those days would not use a female's testimony in their book. But the guys who wrote the Bible did. They just wrote, what happened? If you don't like it, if it's not according to the culture, if if you don't like the custom, if you don't think it's credible, deal with it. They were the first people to see Jesus raised from the dead. Women were. And so these witnesses insisted they saw the living Jesus after the cross. They just kept insisting it. We were eyewitnesses, and as you read the book of Acts... You see that. Continue. We saw it. Say whatever you want to. We saw it. Peter declared that he and others ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Chapter 10 of Acts. Acts 13. Paul said, For many days he was seen by those who traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. It's like, it's right there. If you don't like it, I'm sorry, but that's what happened. And you're going to have to come up with another story to take out all those eyewitnesses. So this was the central teaching of the church. They were convinced they saw him alive after his crucifixion. That's what they built their faith on. That's what their hope was based in. That's what changed their lives. That's what started the church. Does it work for you? True or false? There's some circumstantial evidence, too. I'd just like to add on here as we move towards the end of this. One of them is that the disciples died for their belief in this fact. They, as you read the Gospels, you know they were the first skeptics, right? You couldn't, there's no way when the ladies came back and said, we saw him. No way. So they were the first skeptics of the whole story. Yet something convinced them to quit their jobs, confront danger, tell their stories to the whole world at the cost of their lives. Lee Strobel says in his book, people will die for their beliefs if they sincerely believe they're true, but they won't die for their beliefs if they know they're false. I surrender. I was just kidding. I didn't mean it. Don't kill me. Here's the second circumstantial evidence, and that's James, the brother of Jesus. He was a skeptic, and he and his brothers were skeptics. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, he didn't accept the fact that his brother was the Messiah. John chapter 7 verse 5. Comes right out and says, "Even his own brothers did not believe him." Jesus, the oldest, went off and became famous and left the boys at home to take care of things, and uh, they just resented him. It happens in families. But later, we find that James is a leader in the new church. Galatians chapter one. Tradition says that James was martyred for his belief in Christ. What happened to change this brother from a skeptic to a leader in the church? Well, I only have one explanation. Maybe you can come up with another one. The creed says that Jesus appeared to James. That's really the only explanation I have for his change of heart. Then there's another circumstantial evidence that you should consider, and that's just the changes that happened to all the traditions up to this point. Um, Jewish culture you know, held tightly to the traditions of Moses. As you read the New Testament, you can see that. You know, they held tightly to the diet rules, to the Sabbath rules, um, to the rules about visiting Jerusalem three times a year for these, these festivals. Uh, That's what made them different. They held tightly to all of these things. And then something amazing happened. Uh, Strict Jews gave up their cherished beliefs that they had held for thousands of years. Worship moved over to Sunday. And uh, the diet didn't seem as strict as before. And the temple lost its attraction. And the law of Moses was replaced by... The golden rule. And the Messiah was taught to be the Passover lamb that comes to take away the sin of the world. And it's almost like a social earthquake happened. What caused it to happen? What made all these changes? Think about that one. Then there's one last one I think holds dear to you guys most. And that's communion and baptism that we do every Sunday morning here and is celebrated throughout the, the globe. Uh, tomorrow's President's Day, I believe, and if, if a group of people were devoted to Abraham Lincoln, they might meet for President's Day and talk about his presidency. You know, the Emancipation Proclamation and the Civil War and some of his other uh, pieces of legislation that were passed. But few people would celebrate tomorrow the fact that Abraham Lincoln was shot by John Wilkes Booth. Oh, would. It was such a cool thing when he was shot in Fort Theatre. You know, that was, we just, it was amazing that he was shot that night and John Wilkes Booth snuck up on him and then jumped down onto the platform of the stage and took off. Man, that was so cool. We don't talk about that stuff. We we just celebrate his life. Yet believers get together each week Not so much for the teachings of Jesus or the morals of Jesus. They get together to celebrate, of all the crazy things, they celebrate his death on a cross. And we have this ridiculous thing. We say, that's the good news? He died. That's the good news. We're going, what is good news about that? Well, of course, he died in our place. He took away the punishment that we, that we deserved. And so we talk about his death a lot, but death didn't have the last word. The songs that we sang this morning had resurrection themes all through them. The two pillars of the church are communion and baptism. Both of those things that we practice, every church practices, would be meaningless. It'd almost be morbid. These people, All these people talk about is death. The death of a guy on a cross. Man, that's ridiculous. thats I don't want to go to a place like that. Oh, he's talking about death. But it's more than that, isn't it? There's the resurrection. And it's seen in these two practices. With the resurrection, they have tremendous significance. In baptism, you are buried into his death. Buried in the water. But you're raised... To a new life in Christ. You're celebrating this new life in the living Lord. In in communion, we, we say, This is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ poured out for you. But you proclaim His death until He comes. He's alive and He's coming back. So where did these teachings originate? What do you think? Can you trace them back? Of course, if you're a student of the Scriptures, you trace them right back to the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. Uh, I can invite you back up, Joy, and Jamie, and Jim. Come on back up, and we'll close here. Uh, If you are struggling with your faith and you need reasons for the hope that you have in Christ, 1 Corinthians 15 is where you need to go. This is what you hold on to tight. This is the foundation. This is the creed. Did he die? What happened to his body? What do you do with these eyewitnesses? Are they true or false? How do you explain the start of the church, the end of some of those old traditions, and the beginning of some new ones? How do you explain this joy that people have in, this, in spite of great sorrow in their life? the resurrection was the proof pointed to consistently by the early church under the most intense pressure they would not change their story they held on tight and that's the reason for our hope today so i just invite you to consider the claims of christ yourself you can you can ask any question you want to ask We're wide open to it we may not know the answer but we'll try to get some answers for you but There's nothing to hide here. This This is it. This is the bare truth. We believe that there was a guy who appeared on earth, looked just like us, only he was way different than us because he was God in the flesh, in disguise. And he died on a cross like a lot of other people died on a cross. But he was different because he came back from the grave. That's what we are banking our eternity on. That's it. We're going to dance right off the cliff and right off into eternity holding on to that fact right there. That's what we believe. I invite you to believe that too, to put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. This is the good news by which you are saved. That's what it says.